and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by the managing editor of LARB, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hey, Medea. How's it going? Pretty good. I was excited to talk to Sally Rooney. Oh, I was too. Yes, today we'll be listening to an interview we did with Sally Rooney, whose most recent novel is Normal People. Did you doubt Sally Rooney at first? I'm so glad you asked. Of course I did, because I'm I'm always suspicious of hype and, you know, huge proclamations of genius, but... Unfortunately, she lived up to it. <laughs> did find myself pretty enthralled by, by normal people and, and just really like, oh, devouring it. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I was also really suspicious because there have been so many pieces that are saying, well, she's the greatest millennial writer or she's the one great what is finally the the first great millennial novelist yes the quote i've seen somewhere right 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 and so immediately yes i was very suspicious but the books i don't know if it has to do with her being a millennial people really played up the texting in the book and the way people communicate i didn't think those were the most special things about about this novel personally agreed but i mean the, the texting sounds somewhat accurate maybe more literate than than some texting, but it's it's more about the way characters relate, the scope of connection, just the whole, and and just her beautiful immaculate style, which is yeah. just mm-hmm, silky. It really is, and yeah. I think the way that I tried to describe it when we were talking about it in the parking lot was if somebody sees me and you talking, they just see two bodies conversing with each other. Mm-hmm. What Sally Rooney sees seems to be like a whole power force field around the bodies. She seems to understand the gestures in a particular way. She understands the way that people look at each other. It seems like her world is populated with articulated understanding of how people relate to each other. Mm-hmm. It's really incredible. Very well said. Thank you. Wow. Maybe I should have written the book. I was just going to say, <laughs> do you have a couple novels in you? Anyways, let's get to the interview. Let's do it. are very, very happy to have Sally Rooney in the studio with us today. Sally Rooney is the author of two novels. Normal People is her latest book. Conversations with Friends is her first debut celebrated novel. Sally, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I want to start perhaps by just setting the scene in terms of what the book is about, Normal People. And would you tell us what it's about. Sure. So the novel opens with these two teenage protagonists. I guess they're 18 when we meet them. One young man, Connell Waldron, and one young woman, Marianne Sheridan. And they're in their final year of what we would call secondary school in Ireland. I guess it's called high school here. And they begin a sort of relationship, friendship of sorts outside school, while in school, they sort of affect not to know one another. And the rest of the book traces the dynamic that emerges between them over the following four years as they go on to university up to their final year of university. So they're, I guess, 22 when we leave them. And their power dynamics are different depending on where they are, for instance, because as you mentioned, in school, they don't acknowledge each other. And tell us more about why that is. Sure. So I guess it's a kind of, there's like a simplistic way of explaining it, which I always feel kind of embarrassed to do. But I guess it's also true that in school, one of them is popular and the other one isn't. So Connell is like very well liked in school. He's considered totally normal. He's like on sports teams. And Marianne is sort of a social pariah. And like that is 
true to an extent. She doesn't have a lot of friends. He is sort of well liked, but it's also about how they see themselves and the sort of versions of their own identities that they buy into. So Connell's really invested in the idea of himself as normal. And Marianne, in her own way, is probably invested in the idea of herself as being different and special and maybe in a way a little bit superior to the people she goes to school with. And so that disparity between them is part of the reason that they just won't even look at each other in school, don't acknowledge each other at all. And Connell's mother is a cleaner for Marianne's family. So that's how they get to know one another in a very different context with very different power dynamics at play outside school. And that's the context in which the relationship between them can develop. So it does mean that they have this very stark divide between their sort of their private selves and their sort of public facing identities that they engage in when they walk through the small town where they live or they go to their small secondary school where everyone knows who they are. And that was a kind of disparity that I was very interested in playing with in the opening passages of the book. Something that's interesting about the book, as as you just said, is this, I mean, you have a very banal title, right? Normal people tells you almost nothing about what the book might actually be about. But it does actually give you some idea of one of the central concerns that the book has, which is this formation of the self versus the normal understanding of what the self should be or is. Mm -hmm. Is there a way in which you conceive of the normal? How did you start figuring out this relationship, this tension between how a self forms versus what a normal self is understood as. It's funny because the title was the very last thing that became attached to the text. It was like the very, very last step on the process was coming up with the title. And so it cycled through lots of different working titles and Normal People was the very last one that we landed on. And it was like getting really near to the time where we had to have one. So that was the one we stuck with. And so for me, it is strange thinking through the resonance of that title as it applies to the book, because both of the characters at different points have very different relationships with the idea of norms and normality. Like, as I said, Connell, he's a young man, a teenage boy, really, and then a young adult man. He feels anxiously attached to the idea of normality, really aspires to be perceived as normal. And then when he's not sure what normal is, very anxiously seeks out whatever might be perceived as normal. So he feels anxious and uncertain when he's not sure what the norms are, like particularly in his private life and his sexual life. He doesn't know what's normal for other people. And that creates a sense of anxiety for him. So he's constantly seeking after norms and then attempting to emulate them. Whereas I guess Marianne is someone who feels, at least in the beginning of the novel, I guess borderline contempt for what is normal. Mm. She thinks that normality is sort of beneath her and that she's special and different. I think both of those attitudes are very unhealthy in their own ways. But I wasn't, I guess I also wasn't trying to make some kind of commentary on that, just trying to observe how those different attitudes would interplay with one another in these two characters, because they are so invested in one another, so attracted to one another. They do have this kind of what felt to me when I was writing it like a very compelling bond, but they're also very different. So I was interested in exploring their different relationships to normality. But then I also think they are normal people. Like I wasn't drawn to writing about them because I think they're special in some way. I was interested in them just because they are so in most ways extremely average. There's nothing particularly special about them. Their experiences don't really fall outside the spectrum of what you would consider to be normal experiences. And that kind of their own relationship with that idea of normality drew me to them in a way. What was your relationship to normal growing up or now too? Yeah, I mean, I think probably... I feel I have become a lot more normal. Like I think, yeah, as a teenager, I probably felt slightly alienated from ideas of normality. And again, not in a special way. I think that's something a lot of adolescents go through, like feeling that you're weird or different in some sense. And now I feel like 
almost aggressively normal. I can't like, <laughs> I find it difficult to project myself back into the mindset where that was something that I felt alienated from. And maybe in part, this book was a way of talking myself through those concepts in retrospect, projecting myself into the mind of a teen. Because at different points in my teenage, in my adolescent life, in my young adult life, I probably went through what both Connell and Marianne go through in separate ways, really wanting to be accepted and then rejecting the idea of being accepted. In miniature, those were probably both experiences that I had. So maybe in some sense, these characters were like split versions of myself. And I was talking myself through these experiences in order to make sense of them in retrospect, maybe. But they're both also, we should mention academically exceptional, mm-hmm. that that's where they meet beyond their class disparities, that they're both at the top of their class in school as well. And you make a great point of that they both win these scholarships in college, but Connell needs it and Marianne does not need it, mm-hmm. but they come at it from a different place. And it's this mark of exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. And you're also, you know, been singled out as the novelist of your generation. So despite that, do you still feel quote unquote normal since you're so marked by being exceptional? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a sense of, I suppose I feel like I kind of reject the exceptionalism of that kind of, I think that school and university are so structured around a particular extremely narrow constricted form of academic intellect, which is then rewarded to a hugely disproportionate degree from a really early age. So people who happen to have these not particularly necessarily socially useful skills and aptitudes are told from the age of like four or five, you guys are the special kids. I don't think that process is at all healthy as a social process. And so I was interested in observing how it would affect these characters who do happen to have these fairly like neutral aptitudes. They are very good at sitting exams. They're very bright or whatever you want to say. And that allows them to move through the world in a completely different way from people who just happen not to have those particular skill sets. And so I guess, yeah, that's something that I was interested in, the sort of enforced exceptionalism around academic talent. I don't think that it's healthy. I'm not saying that, yeah, I mean, I hope it doesn't come across that I'm sort of like praising this supposedly meritocratic system because I'm actually very dubious of it. But I am interested in its effects on the people who are sort of funneled through it and indeed on the people who get left behind. I mean, it so happens that these two, the protagonists of this book, are kind of on the lucky end. They're the ones who are marked out and told that their aptitudes are important, like socially important, and that they deserve all these plaudits. I'm equally interested, even though I didn't explore it in this book, in the people who get told the opposite. But there's a subtle exploration of that because their town, I'm not sure exactly where they're... It seems to me from the way people in Dublin, when they go to college, react to the town they're from, that they're from a town that's maybe not thought of as very cosmopolitan. It's like a, tell us about the town where they live. And you do mention there are some people who do seem to not have that possibility to go to Trinity and they're left behind in this town and drink a lot and bad things happen to them. So the town they're from is fictional, but it is in a real county, which is County Sligo, which is the county directly north of where I grew up, County Mayo. And so there is a disparity in Ireland between, I suppose, the west of Ireland, which is seen as rural and maybe perhaps seen by some as unsophisticated or not cosmopolitan compared to the more urban Dublin centred, that part of Ireland. And so that's a disparity that gets played up, particularly, I think, because they go to probably the most elitist academic institution in Ireland, Trinity College in Dublin. And so those disparities get even more focused on and widened because they're in that particular subculture. 
And particularly, I guess, in the post-recession time frame in which this book is set, so it begins in 2011 and it ends in 2015, the differences in opportunities for people in small communities in the west of Ireland versus opportunities for college-educated young people in Dublin are extremely stark. So that divide at that time, and I think still in Ireland, is very wide and noticeable. And so that was something that I had to try and be attentive to without making sort of sweeping generalisations. I mean, obviously, one of my characters, Connell, one of the protagonists, is from working class background, does grow up in this small, not rural, but small town in the west of Ireland and does manage to come to an elitist academic institution and live the kind of life, the same kind of life that Marianne is living in many ways. But nonetheless, he experiences that through the lens of the upbringing that he has had and he has to negotiate what that does to his own identity and his sense of himself. And so it was, I guess, about trying to be attentive to how that would play out on an individual level without ever trying to reduce my characters to a sort of set of social circumstances, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you are from the West of Ireland. Yeah. Have you had to sort of square that identity with your identity now as a successful writer, as a person who is traveling, who's perhaps different than what people might understand as people coming from West of Ireland do. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because in the last couple of years, there have been a lot of writers from County Mayo where I'm from. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, Ireland is obviously very proud of its literary heritage Mm -hmm. and it's very much co-opted by the Irish official culture to an extent, like the Irish literary heritage is almost like a tourist attraction now. Mm -hmm. But in terms of contemporary emerging writers, in the last couple of years, there have been several really important writers nationally and internationally specifically from County Mayo where I'm from so like the short story writer Colin Barrett the writer Emer McBride who won the Bailey's Prize mm. Mike McCormack who won the Impact or the Dublin Literary Award as I think it's known now so like writers winning major international literary awards all from County Mayo which is literally the same county where I'm from and not a particularly densely populated county like actually pretty small so I'm arriving into that very much with those predecessors and with what feels like a very healthy and vibrant literary culture so no it hasn't been a the same complex process of negotiation that I think previous generations of Irish writers may have had to go through. And like also as an Irish woman writer, I think I'm arriving into a scene where there have been, where groundbreaking work has been done, where like women's stories have become prominent because of the hard work of Irish women writers who've gone before me. So in a sense, even though I'm not saying obviously that all those battles have been won, but I think I'm in the very lucky position of arriving into a landscape that's already quite sort of vibrant and conversations that are already ongoing. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like I'm necessarily breaking new ground there. I think I'm very lucky in terms of what I've been, the kind of literary world that I've been allowed to move into. This is just a very (laughs) minor anecdote that doesn't, is not important, but I will tell it anyway, which is that when I first got to college a very long time ago, one of the first people I met picked a fight with me about who has the greater literary history Ireland or Russia. Oh. I know. And so this is a fact. This is something I'm aware of. I had to, well, I was cornered into the Russia side, so I had to take that side. But I mean, Ireland's pretty small compared to Russia. I think even being put on a plane with Russia is a sign of how well Ireland has done in terms of punching above its weight. You know, like we're a pretty small, pretty small country. I'm proud that we're even up there for consideration, to be honest. That's very funny. I wanted to go back to time in the book because it's, both in the way that you structure the narrative, which is 
there's a lot of going back, going forward, going back, like going, you know, a couple of weeks forward. And it's all delineated at the top of each chapter section, exactly where you are in time, but then also the time frame that it's set in. This is a very timeless story of people who are drawn to each other outside of their class. And also the school novel, there's a way in which it could be set in any time. Mm-hmm. But the very deliberateness of the framing it against the post-recession was interesting. And just maybe you could talk more about that decision. Sure. So the reason that I decided to set it with such specific time markers, like often a chapter will open with, you know, April 2012 or whatever. So you really know exactly where you are in the chronology was because I started writing the book in late 2015. And I knew pretty early on in my process of writing the book, I'd already written about these characters in short stories. And I knew early on in the process of writing the book that I wanted to stick with them for the duration of their time in college. So from the very end of school to the very end of college. So I knew that the book was going to span sort of four years. And then beginning to write it in 2015, I felt like I could either have them be in school then and follow them for four years and end the book in 2019, or I could begin it in 2011 and end it in 2015, if that makes sense. So like Mm -hmm. either work from the past or work my way into the future, sort of projecting myself forward and imagining what life would be like then. And I guess I just decided I didn't know what life would be like then. I just didn't feel confident in 2015 that I knew what was coming around the corner. And I think I was right about that. It is actually difficult to imagine exactly how these relationships would have played out. I think they probably would have shifted in subtle ways, maybe in some not so subtle ways, because of the huge social and political changes that have taken place in those years, both in the context of Ireland and obviously internationally. Like it's been a wild couple of years in terms of the political, global political landscape. And so I think it would have been very disingenuous of me to set it during those years, not knowing what was actually about to happen. And so it made more sense for me to go back to 2011. And because of that, I think those are similar to the years that I myself was in college. They're not exactly the same. But I was remembering things that did indeed happen in college when I was there. And also just the sense of the Irish political economy and social economy, you know, after the bailouts, after we guaranteed the banks, the sense of deep sort of pessimism about the economic system, a sense of national failure, a sense of systems breaking down. And that I think maybe in some very background sense that was feeding into how these characters were feeling. And like, it's a difficult process to nail down because I certainly wasn't saying, oh, I'm going to give Marianne this line of dialogue because she's feeling sceptical about the bailout. <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but, I, but I think like it was kind of, I guess I was kind of in a way, I was like remembering what it was like for, I started college in 2009, so like right after the big economic crisis. And just as that was beginning to sort of unfold and like we were coming to understand how serious it was and how systemic it was. And so these characters are a little younger than me. But I guess I was remembering some of that, that atmosphere and what that felt like. And it made more sense for me to do that than to try and set it in some sort of like nether time where we weren't exactly sure Mm -hmm. what the texture of the political or social world was like. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Sally Rooney, author of Normal People. We will return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have William E. Jones in the studio with us today. William is an artist and a writer. His latest book is called I Am Open to Anything. It's a novel. And William is here to give us a book recommendation. William, what book are you going to recommend? I'd like to recommend The Imposter by Javier Cercas. 
Okay, can you tell us about the book? Yeah, the book is about a guy named Enrique Marco, and he was a very famous case in Spain. He had told everyone that he was a concentration camp survivor in World War II, and he had a whole narrative of his life that he told that included being an anarchist in Barcelona and fighting as a teenager in the Spanish Civil War, being deported to a Nazi concentration camp, and surviving. Then after he came back to Spain, he participated actively in the anti-Franco resistance. Hmm. It turns out that all of this, or virtually all of it, was false. That's amazing. And he was on the verge of attending an important ceremony commemorating the concentration camp victims with the prime minister of Spain. And literally days before that happened, a historian came forward and said, I have reason to believe that what he's done is fabrication. We have no evidence for most of these things. And the narrative he tells actually took place at a time when it couldn't have happened. And this became a huge scandal in Spain. Javier Cercas decided to do a book about him with some trepidation. Mm -hmm. He writes both fiction and nonfiction, and he wanted to do something that was about the boundary between the two. And he had a lot of reservations. Eventually, he gave in and started interviewing Enrique Marco, who was incredibly verbose and just this mythomaniac on some new level. I mean, he was an incredible creature. And in the process, not only does Javier Cercas debunk many of the claims, which of course he must, and he discovers a kernel of truth in a number of the lies, which is a good thing. The best liar is somebody who is close to the truth. He also discovered that Enrique Marco's mother had been in an insane asylum and had given birth to Enrique while she was in the asylum. So the, the guy had a very troubled childhood, but there were relatives of his who were anarchists, and he did actually serve in the Spanish Civil War. He went to Germany voluntarily to work oh. for the German war effort. And there was a program. Franco lent all these workers to Nazi Germany. Uh, he was part of it, but he was put in prison in Kiel, and his charges were acquitted, but he did spend some time in a Nazi prison. But it wasn't exactly what he said it was. Many people were really, really angry, understandably, at right. what, he had, what he had done. And he was really kind of a broken man when Cercas got to him. But the fascinating thing for me is that I know a bit about the Spanish Civil War, and I know a bit about democratic Spain. Mm -hmm. But what happened in between, which is many years, is a bit of a blank spot in my knowledge. And the book does a very good job of dealing with what he calls a man of the majority, the people who accommodated the fascist regime in Spain, the people who just wanted to survive and get by, and who, in a sense, allowed it to continue on so long, who were the majority of the people. And... I'd never really had an account of that. And to me, that was really fascinating and informative and perhaps also appropriate for America during the age of Trump. Yeah, well, I was going to say this really fits with our, our year of hoaxers and yeah. the many sort of imposters that fill our collective culture. Yeah, this book was written, I think, in 2017 and published mm -hmm. in 2018. I don't think the book could be done today because there's just overkill with the imposter narrative. But I'm very happy to exist. 
Well, that sounds wonderful. William, will you tell us again the title of the book and the author? It's called The Imposter, and it's by Javier Cercas, C-E-R-C-A-S. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with William E. Jones, author of I'm Open to Anything. Thank you, William. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Sally Rooney, author of Normal People. Because in this book, now that you bring up politics, I think the way that politics works is, again, sort of more about the role that it plays in the formation of the self of these two very unformed Mm. young people. Something that I I read, or maybe I heard you say elsewhere, is that you were raised by socialist parents. Mm, mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about how politics has played in in the formation of you personally and how you might write about it in a book where politics really is something that shapes a person. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I was, my, my parents are both definitely socialists and. How did that play out when you were a kid? Well, like, you know, my dad is a, he was, he's now retired. He was a technician for the state telephone company. So like he was fixing phone lines and stuff. He would have been a, you know, trade union, leftist, like working class leftist um, in the European sense, like that was a political formation that made sense in the 20th century. And that was the tradition of thought that he belonged to. My mum ran the local arts centre and was really interested in the arts. They both were interested in the arts, big readers. And so I guess that was the kind of moral philosophical frame that we were raised with. Like we, I mean, we, (laughs) I also went to mass every weekend and You know, Ireland at that time was a more religious country than it is now in the 1990s. And the version of Christianity that we were given at home was very much like Jesus Christ as friend of the the needy and the sick and the persecuted and the marginalized. And that was just my whole way of thinking about morality. It was something that I never questioned. I just accepted uncritically the way that, you know, children sometimes do. And then I guess as I started to think a little bit more independently and certainly as I went to college and started reading independently... It still made sense to me in a way. Like I, I, I came back to those principles and thought about them independently, thought about them differently and tried to inform them with wider reading and tried to apply them to situations, you know, global political situations that hadn't been on my mind as a child. Um, but I found like those principles definitely stayed with me. They, they are the ones that I find most appealing. And so it's been a way of kind of working my thought and my reading and my, you know, learning around those principles. And, and again, like, critically and trying to not just accepting them without questioning, but trying to work all my all my thinking around those. And I guess that that's how I approach my fiction as well. Like it's I'm very much guided by my way of looking at the world and the, and the way of looking at the world that makes most sense to me is, I guess, what you could call a Marxist framework or certainly a framework that's about power disparity trying to understand who has the power, who's wielding the power, how they're wielding it and how that impacts the people over whom they're wielding it. And like absolutely not giving myself credit for being able to answer that question all the time. Like I'm not. And often like miss answering it incorrectly and then later realising I did not understand who had the power there. You know, sometimes it was me and I didn't think it was me, but it was. And so I guess I'm interested in following my, my characters through those processes as well. I think I generally tend to write about characters who are really interested in those questions, who are like moved by injustice, 
who are unhappy with the world that they live in, but who don't necessarily know how to make things better. Um, and those are the questions that occupy me and, and that occupy my characters as well. Something I found just so crushing in the book is that you feel these Marion and Connell, they're, they're both, something is keeping them apart or many things, but that they don't seem to recognize completely the structures that they're a part of. And that if they had those answers totally, they might be able to discuss them you know, further and realize exactly where each of them falls in. But they don't really speak about their economic relationship until much later in the book. And so in the beginning, it just seems like I mean, maybe it's that Marion's not popular in school, but also that there's something else at play that neither of them really talk about, but it's still there kind of brewing and, and, and you know, wedging them apart in some ways. Was that something that you consciously decided that they, I mean, it doesn't, this book is obviously, it's not agitprop at all. It's so deeply felt, but there does seem to be some kind of mysterious thing or or unsaid thing between them in the beginning at Absolutely. least. Absolutely. A lot of unsaid things I think because you can approach the sort of analysis of their relationship from the perspective of class and say Marianne comes from a middle class background her mother literally pays Connell's mother to clean like their toilets. That is a very structuring principle of their early relationship, certainly. And I think throughout their relationship, Marianne always has more money than Connell has. And she doesn't seem particularly aware of that, you know, or if she does, it's not in a way that's really meaningfully empathetic toward his situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't seem to be able to talk about it because of her seeming ignorance or perhaps apathy on one hand and because of his internalized sense of I think shame, what he would probably call awkwardness or embarrassment, but what I think for him is really a form of shame about the fact that he doesn't have a lot of money and also doesn't have the things that are adjacent to money, like cultural capital and and things like that. But then there's also another way of analysing their relationship, which maybe has more to do with gender and sexuality or maybe breaks down more along just personal power lines, which is that Marianne is sort of unstintingly loyal to Connell, whereas he is not always able to rise to that for her and often at sort of key moments in their relationship he will withdraw or even kind of betray her which he does once or twice in very significant ways so Marianne is offering him a lot and and really wanting him to be there and he's not always able to to be there for her he probably hurts her more than she hurts him so there's another way of analyzing their relationship that says well he's actually the kind of He's really the man of the relationship. He's wielding this personal power over her. He knows that she's totally on the hook for him and he can always come back to her. He knows that she's always going to be there and he doesn't really treat her right. So, I mean, it's not that neither of those are true. I mean, I guess the, the, both those ways of analysing the relationship are true. They're both mm-hmm. kind of true. Both of them exercise power over the other in not very nice ways throughout the book. And there is no simple sort of winner. There's, it's, no, it's not always obvious who's the one who, who has the, uh, the upper hand, I think, at a given moment. And their inability to really answer that question for themselves definitely prevents them at, at various points from being able to be together in the way that they want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that also that also brings up one of the central things in the book, which is sex and also the way that Marianne evolves into having a number of sub-dom relationships, BDSM relationships, I guess you could sort of call them that because there are times when it doesn't seem like she is fully there to actually consent to them, at least mentally. But so one of the things that I wanted to ask you was how do you think 
these fluctuations of power, these ways in which power moves back and forth from person to person, then is translated into a kind of sexual contract or a kind of understanding between people in terms of the kind of sex that they have or mm -hmm. the kind of sex that they want. Mm -hmm. Well, I think like I was interested in exploring how power structures sexual relationships generally. So I'm I'm very wary of saying, oh, Marianne has certain kinds of sex in which she fetishizes power disparity and then she has normal sex where that's not fetishized at all because that's not the case. She, she There's always some degree of power play in, in pretty much every kind of sexual interaction she gets into in the book. When she's with Connell, at various points, they're very happy. They're having sex, which feels very intimate and sort of emotionally involved and pleasurable for both of them. But there is still some form of power play going on there. It's just a power play that they both feel comfortable with. And they're both sort of understanding, even if they can't quite articulate what it is that they're understanding about it. And at other times, she's seeking out a form of power play that is less that that she's feels less in control of or that she's not understanding in the same way or that or she's not getting the emotional intimacy from that makes her feel safe with it. So I think she's a character who for whom her sexuality is deeply tied to power games and when she can't have that fulfilled by someone who really cares for her and is invested in her feeling okay, she pursues it with people who don't care about her and aren't invested in her feeling okay. And that's not so healthy then. So she definitely does pursue sexual relationships which are destructive for her sense of self. But that's not necessarily because those are the ones that involve power. I think they all involve power. I don't think she's necessarily able to have a, or or necessarily that anyone is able to have a, a sexual encounter that doesn't involve power on any level. Like there's a power exchange built into the structure of sexual intimacy. And so the particular kinds that she's going after, she sometimes manages to make that work in a way that's good for her. And then sometimes it's it's not because the people who she's participating in it with aren't, um, you know, they they don't care about her as a, as a full human being. And that's that's wounding for her, I think. Yeah. I mean, and partly it seems like it's simpler that way, right, for her mm -hmm. in terms of like, you don't have to negotiate if what you do is just give in. Yeah. And then the the idea of having to participate in some kind of power play, she sort of takes herself out of the equation by just submitting yeah. to whatever it is that the other person wants. I think that's true. And also that she doesn't feel, she herself doesn't feel emotionally invested in those exchanges. And so she's not worried about what the other person will think of her or how she's making the other person feel because yeah. she also doesn't feel she has to give a lot of respect or affection. She can actually feel like a level of disrespect or even contempt for the person who's doing these things to her because she's so switched off and not sort of engaged in it emotionally. And um, so you're right, I think it's a lot more challenging for her when she's involved in a relationship that demand something of her on, emotional, on an emotional level because she has to be more present and she has to sort of negotiate or communicate in a way that's, that's difficult, that makes her feel vulnerable. Yeah. I don't think I've read um, a, a novel in which is partly about love but between two characters in a long time where it was very, not that this book is overly sincere, but where that I could truly feel the connection and, and I was really pulled into it and it was not portrayed in a cloying way, but just on a, on a deep level of what love can feel like. Was there any hesitation on your part of writing about romantic interactions with, between, between these characters or that, that love is not actually something that's written about that much these days because of all the 
you know, overly sentimental connotations of it. Did you ever hesitate or were there books that that, that were models for you in terms of portraying deep affection between people? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, actually, because it's you're I think you're kind of right. Like I struggle to think of other of other and, and I'm sure partly through my own ignorance, I struggle to think of other contemporary novelists who are doing that specific kind of thing. Obviously, there are so many contemporary novelists who are models for me who I sort of hold in my heart as like examples of what great contemporary writing can be. They're not necessarily exploring the same territory, which is kind of a nice thing for me because it means like I can have a little niche. Yeah. <laughs> which again, I'm sure is is partly my own ignorance. There are, I'm I'm so confident lots of other contemporary writers doing really really interesting things writing about um writing about interpersonal love and romance. But I guess the writers I'm I'm really excited about reading at the moment aren't necessarily exploring the same stuff in the same way. So I'm thinking of writers like Sheila Hetty, Ben Lerner, Zadie Smith, Smith, whose work I'm so always so excited and exhilarated to read, not necessarily exploring, though, the same in terms of outside concerns about style and, and tone, aren't necessarily exploring the same thematic sort of stuff. Right. Um, and yeah, like, did I have any hesitation? Not really. No, not really. I mean, for me, that's like, that's the story. And that was the only story that I had in mind to tell. Like, Mm. I didn't, I have to work with the ideas I have. And that was like, that was the idea. The idea idea was like this love story between these two characters. So definitely I I had to push myself to do it with all the nuance that I could do and to bring as much to bear on it as I could to be as attentive to the kind of stuff we're talking about, class and power struggle and gender but also to tell the story of their relationship and to make it compelling, like to, to make to make them, you know, as interesting as I could and to make them as interesting to each other as I could. So to make the the, the love that they feel for one another and the sort of very intense attraction that they feel for one another compelling on the page. And so I kind of just thought, well, that's my job. I have to do it as well as I can do it. I didn't necessarily think... I definitely do have moments of thinking like my novels are not very serious. Like they're not. <laughs> they're basically love stories about young, relatively privileged young people. They're not necessarily very serious works of literature. But I, I also think I'm fine with that. Like I don't I don't necessarily I can only do what I can do. And maybe I'll get really serious later. I don't know. <laughs> but I can only write the ideas that I have. And so far, I've only had like two ideas. So I just had to do them justice. I had to do the best I could do. I think you did a good job. I, yeah. I also I think I would disagree about the um, the seriousness of the book, just because it, I think of something that makes a book serious, and I was actually trying to think about this yesterday, is if it has worthwhile ideas in it. It, it could be very beautiful. It could be a sentence by sentence, really lovely to read. But I think something that is is very important about something quote unquote serious is does it have something interesting to say? And can it <laughs> and, bind and this- you to ideas, you know, not just by laying them out, but where you discover I mean the deeper ideas that are in this story, you know, through the story itself, mm. you know, yeah. and through your connection, emotional connection to the characters mm-hmm. where you can truly feel. I think feelings are underrated. So, well, thank yeah. you. That's a nice thought, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah you did a, a great thank job. You. And um, it w- it's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Thank, thank you, you, Sally. Thank you so much. We have been speaking with Sally Rooney. Her latest book is called Normal People. It's a novel. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. 
The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 